Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our special guest is Matt Hogan, CIO and Global Head of Research at Bitwise Asset Management, creator of the world's first cryptocurrency index fund. Matt is also the chairman of Inside ETFs, the world's largest ETF conference. He was previously CEO of ETF.com, where he helped build the world's first ETF and analytics data system. And he's also the co-author of the CFA Institute's monograph on ETFs. Before we cue the music, if you're enjoying the show, please hit that subscribe button. And also comments are very important. Please feel free to leave us a comment. Uh, if we like the comment, we'll get back to you. Uh, but other than that, uh, everything you do in terms of uh, watching Raise Your Average uh, helps us a great deal. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you and it's great to see you again. It's good to see you as well. I'm super excited to be here, was waiting for it, and uh, I'm thrilled. Matt, for those who don't know you, uh, please tell us the story of your career, how and where you started in the industry, where you've been, and what you've been doing these days at Bitwise. Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people know me from my ETF background. Uh, before I got to Bitwise, I spent more than a decade in the ETF space. I uh, started as a, a freelance reporter at a site called indexuniverse.com, possibly the worst URL in the history of websites. Uh, that site eventually transitioned to become ETF.com, which is a slightly better URL, I think most people would say. Um, and I had the pleasure of growing with that company, spending 10 years there, eventually became CEO. We did a lot of firsts there. We wrote the CFA monograph on ETFs created the largest ETF conference, created the first ETF analytics system. Uh, and after I sold that business, I went through a two-year earnout uh, with the conference unit with a company called Informa. And then I looked around for the next big, disruptive, exciting, innovative, controversial, multi-trillion dollar potential market uh, and ended up, of course, in crypto. So uh, for the past few years, I've been the CIO of Bitwise Asset Management. We're the first and largest crypto index fund manager in the world. Uh, we manage a suite of products, mostly for financial advisors, and today manage a little over a billion dollars in assets. Amazing. Amazing. Can you, uh, can you dig us, dig into the, the journey a little bit and, and how you sort of think about disruptive technologies? You were a first mover in ETFs and a first mover in taking what you learned in ETFs and applying it in the crypto space. But can you give us the journey there? What were the parallels that you see? What are the differences that you see? How is this rolling out? You know, sort of past, present, and future. Yeah, the amazing thing is there's so many parallels. I mean, we take we think of ETFs today as sort of the mother's milk of investing. Everyone loves them. They're super low cost. They form the core of our portfolio. But for people who have been around in the ETF industry for a while, we remember when that wasn't true. We remember when people called them EFTs. Uh, we remember when the Financial Times labeled them weapons of mass destruction and talked about liquidity doom loops, which is almost a science fiction term in its frightening narrative. Uh, I remember when the U.S. Congress had congressional hearings where they hold ETF executives in front of Congress and ask them if ETFs were destroying American entrepreneurialism and killing the American dream. So I do remember when ETFs were almost persona non grata, when people didn't believe in them. And I saw the transition from that to what they are today. And that transition had a lot of steps. The core one was education. You know, when I was looking around at what to do next, I could have stayed in the ETF industry, but it felt like I was sort of polishing the head on a pin. I've been doing that for a very long time. ETFs had overcome a lot of the steps to, to where I thought they were going. And I wanted to find an industry that I thought had multi-trillion dollar potential, but where there was a lack of understanding, and maybe a lack of quality information. And boy, crypto is that. Crypto is like the land of hyperbole. Either 
It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's going to cure poverty, eliminate cancer, and enter us into a world of global peace. <laughs> or it's rat poison squared, uh, worse than tulip bulbs, and anyone who touches it should be fired. And the, the writing and communication in that space reflects that completely. You're either in one of these two extremes. And of course, what I saw uh, was a, a technology with real potential and real risks, real opportunities and real limitations. And I thought maybe I could add some value by helping people understand it. Uh, and so I jumped in with, with two feet and here I am four years later. Amazing. Well, what were, what were some of the, what are some of the lessons you learned in the first go around with ETFs in entering and growing with a massive trend like that, that you're putting to work today with Bitwise and Bitwise investments as you grow that? What, what have you learned? What are the key lessons and, and how are you sort of improving the journey for yourself? And Bitwise. Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. You know, the, the first thing, and this may just be how I think, but I'm a, I'm a sort of first principles thinker. What I did in ETFs that I thought I did well uh, was sort of core education around ETFs. I did ETF 101 presentations a million times because I felt like if you could understand the creation redemption mechanism, which isn't that complex, but it's not that easy, it takes maybe five minutes. If you could understand that, you could understand all the benefits of ETFs as well as all the risks. You could understand that there were trading and slippage and execution risks and that you bore the responsibility of those. You could understand that the flip side of those risks uh, were lower costs, greater tax efficiency, more control over your trading and greater clarity of what you were investing in. So I thought if you could just get this one thing, you can understand everything you need to know about ETFs. And the same thing is true with crypto. Uh, if you can just understand at a simple level uh, what a blockchain is and what makes it different from what came before it. Uh, you can understand the spaces that crypto and blockchains open up. And you can understand the spaces where it really is just hype and hyperbole and it's never going to get to scale. And so that, that sort of emphasis on first principles education is something that I've, I've very much carried through. Um, and then the other thing is to just constantly expect there to be fear, uncertainty, and doubt thrown around around any new innovative technology. People are still talking about ETF liquidity doom loops. They're talking about whether fixed income ETFs will collapse the market when in fact it's fixed income mutual funds that are systemic risk to the market. Um, and that's, I think that it, that's persisted for 10 or 15 years. Uh, uh, I say that because crypto is the same. Many of the sort of concerns around crypto are not backed up by the data, but that doesn't clear you for the responsibility of repeating those over and over and over again. So uh, some level of persistence and then maybe belief that that persistence will eventually pay off is something I've carried from the ETF space. So educate before you allocate heavy, heavy on the education. And heavy, heavy on our first principle of education. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. What do you, what do you think about, you, you bring up the bond market and, and, you know, we've had some fight around tether just over the last couple of days. We're, we're doing this recording on July 26, just for context for anyone listening. But what, what are you seeing there hearing in that world of, of, um, FUD with respect to some of the, I don't want to call it a doom loop, but some of the potential, um, regulations around some of these, what are sort of like money market funds in, in the crypto space? Yeah. Well, uh, I think for people who don't know what Tether is, Tether is a stable coin that's supposed to be backed one for one for the dollar. If you were creating a stable coin today, which some people are, the way you would do it is you would run it like a money market fund. Subject to regulatory requirements, you would back it by transparent allocations to commercial paper and treasuries and other low yielding instruments and make money on the carry. The accusation with Tether is that it's not fully backed. Uh, and for what it's worth, that accusation is grounded in history and meaningful history. There was a time when Tether really wasn't backed by liquid reserves. Uh, but we could talk about why that was. I don't think it was driven by any sort of evil intent. I think it was driven by Tether's response to a constrictive regulatory environment in 2015 and 2016. Um, but it was under collateralized. Then it managed to re-collateralize itself. Uh, and today it exists in some sort of gray zone. I, look, I do think there's risk in Tether. I don't think there's a zero risk. Uh, I don't also think it's going to blow up. But I think people are right 
to look at crypto as it evolves from its sort of grassroots anarchic past into a regulated future and ask what risk remains in that evolution. Uh, and Tether is an example of one of the non-zero risks that exists out there. I don't think it's a present risk. Uh, I don't think it's a crushing risk, but it's not as well regulated as a traditional money market fund. And this is no different than any other major uh, or any other emergent asset class. I mean, we are uh, talking to a lot of Canadian advisors in this podcast. We're used to being the first in everything, uh, uh, including ETFs, by the way. And uh, and we're looking at areas like marijuana and psychedelics that all have these initial high risk, non-zero blow up risks, right? And so the the question is understanding that, how should advisors decide to allocate to those emergent asset classes? And, you know, just curious to hear your thoughts as to how you, how you talk to advisors about that particular portfolio construction part of things? Well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, from a simple portfolio construction perspective, the answer is appropriate portfolio sizing as it was for those others risk sensitive assets, right? So in crypto, do you want 50% of your portfolio in crypto? Probably not because it's hugely volatile, but can you have a small allocation that increases your sharp ratio? Uh, historically, that's been true. And I think in the future, that will, might be true. The way I think of those risks, like the tether risk, is that they're probably over discounted by the market. There's a huge portion of the market that won't go near crypto because they can't evaluate those risks. They can't even understand or contextualize them. If you're inside of crypto, uh, you've studied tether, you know its history, you know why it had an issue with banking in 2015 and 2016, because every crypto company had an issue with banking. Um, and you're able to contextualize the risks. So it's, yeah, I think there's actually a, an element of being compensated for taking those risks, which are probably overly discounted by the market, but you can't be naive that they exist, right? Like any emerging market, there are big shocking risks out there and that has to be incorporated. And the way you do that is by appropriately sizing your portfolio. Uh, but on the flip side of that, you get compensated as those risks get managed away over the time. Uh, and they are being, they, and they have been. Uh, and it's happening with Tether too. It's share of the stablecoin market is falling rapidly right now. Um, and it's moving to more regulated stable points. So I think this is part of the maturity of any asset. How, how, how are you, um, uh, viewing the, um, the passage of time and the opinions of the advisor community and allocator community with respect to the asset class. If we go back a year from now, what were your conversations like with those thinking about allocating and who were they and what was their mindset versus as you talk to people today? How has that mindset shifted? Yeah, uh, in, in a couple of important ways. And actually we have some data on this because we do a survey of advisors every January. Um, so one, one way it's changed is the percentage of advisors who are allocating in client accounts is growing at about 100% a year. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's up around 10% this year in our survey of 1,000 advisors. A year ago, it was around six. It's not quite 100%. But there's plan, the, the people indicating they plan to invest uh, rose substantially to about another 17%. So there, there's just much more interest. The biggest change that's taken place over the last two years is two years ago, there were still a lot of discussions that were binary discussions. Will Bitcoin and crypto amount to anything or is it a tulip bubble and, we'll, it, and it will simply go away? Those conversations have more or less disappeared. Uh, that used to maybe be a 50-50 split when I spoke with advisors. And now it's like 95 to 5. Almost no one thinks that this is going away, that Bitcoin is worth zero. It's been around too long. It's been through too many uh, up and down markets. There are too many institutions in the space. So... I think that switch from, you know, from whether this will stick around to how big this will be is the single biggest change in how advisors are thinking about it. Uh, and the other thing I would say is advisors have started to move past Bitcoin. It used to be mostly a Bitcoin only conversation. Increasingly, conversations are about Ethereum. They're about DeFi. They're about other assets down the chain. So that's another big change that we've really noticed in the last few years. So if you are an advisor, it, in Canada, we do have the benefit of having actually uh, several 
ET listed ETFs and some funds that uh, people can enjoy and buy. And whether whether there's reasons why you would and wouldn't buy those, and I'll leave that for another conversation. But so so they have the opportunity to do this. It sounds like it's it's kind of turned into a bit of a threat to the advisor's business if they're not in some way educated and uh, able to speak to the client demand or the client curiosity of at least is that is that about right? It's it's a hundred percent true. Remember, this was a retail led phenomenon. Advisors and institutions are just catching up. So I think, and my experience would show that there's a high probability that it's almost every financial advisor has a client that's allocating on their own. Most have many who are allocating on their own. And if you ask them these questions, they'll, or, or they'll tell you that they're allocating. Uh, those clients increasingly want to talk to their advisor and work with their advisor on how to allocate to the space. And I think it's incumbent on every advisor to have smart answers about this space. Um, you're going to lose clients if you don't. And that's increasingly true. I'll give you an incredible stat from here in the U.S., Coinbase is the largest crypto brokerage in the U.S. It has more accounts than Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, and Interactive Brokers combined. Combined. Wow. All four wow. of those businesses. Wow. Is uh, that right? It's that incredible. incredible. So, right? so they, yeah. they have, those clients have accounts at Coinbase or somewhere else. They've experimented. <laughs> they've started already with or without you, advisor or allocator. They're on it. <laughs> That's exactly right. And... You're not being paid on those assets, but more importantly, they're making the worst behavioral mistakes because the biggest risks in crypto are behavioral risks. Uh, it's a hugely volatile asset. It's up, it's down. People are chasing returns. They're dumping at the bottom. They would do so much better if those allocations can be brought inside a professionally managed portfolio. I think it's one of the best ways to build a business as an advisor today to be an expert on the space. Uh, and I think it's also one of the ways you can help your clients the most because um, they are going to do it on their own, uh, and they'd be better off if you could hold their hand through it and help them make sensible decisions. Because okay, the we talk about, I, just have one, I have one more yeah. follow-up question, guys, and then I'll, I know I've been down right. here, and, I, I'm going on a, a path. So because there is no U.S.-based ETF, how is Bitwise offering that through the advisor channel? How are you manifesting that? for advisors to participate in. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to Rod and Pierre from Law. Sure. Uh, Bitwise provides private funds that are available to accredited investors only. And we have a couple hundred RIAs who are allocating to us through those private funds. There are also shares of our Bitwise 10 crypto index fund, so it's the 10 largest assets that trade on the OTC market, like GBTC. Many people have heard of GBTC, the giant Bitcoin trust. It can trade at premiums and discounts to it in its net asset value. That's the same with BITW, which is our index product. Uh, it can trade at premiums and discounts to its net asset value. Some advisors prefer the liquidity and ease of use and reporting of that OTC traded ticker, despite those premium discount risks. Others prefer, you know, one of the private funds that we offer. Um, and we're agnostic. Ultimately, we would love to have ETFs. You guys in Canada have led the way and hopefully uh, we follow behind. Uh, until then, we're left with these sort of imperfect ways uh, of allocating uh, and we serve advisors through that. But, you know, beyond that, we mostly want to be sort of the, the eyes and ears and research team for advisors. Uh, we have a full research department. We, we produce reports. I wrote the CFA Institute's first guide to crypto. Um, we want to help advisors answer the questions that their clients have. Uh, because those questions change every day and the advisors can't monitor it 24-7. Fantastic. So can we talk about the recent uh, correction in Bitcoin? Uh, you know, if it, it seemed... correction? It's over. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I, I know. Did you miss on that? It's July 26, right? <laughs> yeah. As of, I mean, as of what, yesterday? You know, yeah, you wrote yeah. the, you yeah. that question down on Sunday morning? <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't believe it. I, I you know, in any event, I, I, I just thought it was weird, you know, that, that, you know, Elon Musk came along and finally, you know, he allocated a billion and a half dollars to Bitcoin. And then, and then, you know, very shortly after that, he came out, you know, in terms of uh, ESG came out against Bitcoin with, with, uh, vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, use of, or the toll on electrical power that it was taking. 
and that he had, mm-hmm. and that he had to rethink the whole thing. And then, and then what, what happened after that? Did millennials just have a collective fit and, and, and say, you know, I, I'm going to get out of this Bitcoin thing and I'm going to go to GameStop or AMC or some other, you know, like it, it's, or, or was it uh, part of more of a structural, you know, issue with Bitcoin following, you know, maybe following post the uh, uh, last year's having was that, was that, I mean, I, I'm, I, Love to hear since you're in the thick of things. Um, right. Love to hear your your thoughts on on what it was that led to this this uh, gigantic drawdown, and yeah, and then yeah. Has, and well, then and then has this massive rebound in one day. <laughs> you can talk about rain. It's all, it, it's all because of GameStop. Everything because of GameStop. <laughs> yeah. You guys know the primary driver, all capital assets. Um, you know, I would say two things. One. You got to put it in context. So even at the depth of the pullback, when it was trading at about $30,000, it was still up 250% year over year. So it was up as much in the past 12 months, including the drawdown as the S&P 500 had been up over the past eight years. So that's not, it's, it it is important to keep that in mind. It gone way up. And so a pullback is somewhat necessary. That said, there were three pieces of news that were material news. We had the Elon tweet, raising the interest and concern around ESG. The impact that that had was that any institutional investor who was considering an allocation to Bitcoin had to pause and evaluate it for its ESG characteristics. It had a, it had a real impact. People who say like a tweet doesn't matter are wrong. Every institution that was looking at Bitcoin had to do that evaluation. So it was a delay. We also had China ban Bitcoin mining, right. which caused the market to freak out. It sounds bad. Historically, when China bans something on the internet, that is the perfect time to invest. So I'm, I'm not sure if the market got that one right. Um, I actually do think that will be positive yeah. for Bitcoin because it spreads out the mining network. And then three, uh, we had and continue to have a new focus on regulation in the crypto space. Now, the first two pieces, the China news and the Elon news, are good news in disguise. The China news, because it diversifies Bitcoin mining. The Elon news, because now... It's gone through the due diligence of one of the world's leading environmentalists and a guy that people love. And he's come out the other side as pro-Bitcoin. So I think as a proof point that Bitcoin is actually positive on an ESG front, I think that's going to be great news. The third piece, um, the regulation piece, is still an unknown. That's a legitimate risk in the market. It has the potential to be a big driver of upside, uh, but it did introduce some uncertainty. So those three pieces of news stacked one on top of the other over the course of three weeks uh, is what led to a 50% drawdown. Uh, And now we're going to see if we, if we recover and continue up, um, which I think is the base case, uh, or if strong negative news on the regulatory front uh, pushes up into another crypto winner, uh, which is the non-zero possibility as well. And the regulatory side you speak of is not necessarily running uh, the funds and turning them into ETFs. But we're we're talking about all levels of government and what they have to do to weigh in into this asset class, right? <laughs> I, I put together a list. I, I'm usually pretty uh, equal-handed about regulation. I see it as one of the potential major drivers of a bull market, and then I see the potential for risk. I put together our notes from the CIO. I send one out every month and I listed every regulatory agency that enacted plans to investigate the crypto market over the next three months. And it was actually a little terrifying to me. Uh, I feel like it was every three letter combination of initials that you could put together, the OCC and the SEC and the IRS and the <laughs> CBOB. And uh, it was, it was, it was a little bit terrifying. Uh, so that is, it's not related to the ETF front. Um, I think that process is actually going along fine and we'll get there. But the broader question of how do we regulate stable coins? How do we regulate decentralized finance? How do securities laws that were created in the 1920s apply to a digital asset that wasn't a figment of anyone's imagination back then? Uh, How do we apply AML KYC across borders for an asset that can move instantaneously between synonymous wallets? These are all very real questions and they can be answered in an industry positive way. Or they can be answered in in sort of a uh, industry crushing way, um, and uh, and regulators are human, so we don't know what what that will come out. I feel confident, not in a worst case scenario, but in the base case scenario, it's still bullish for crypto. Um, but of course, there there are outlier scenarios that are risky as well. 
Do you think the, uh, we the feel like the U.S. is the linchpin? Sorry, Mike. <laughs> I, I just want to follow up on, on uh, okay. this went through some, some of the uh, regulatory bodies, all American. Do we think that once the U.S. starts putting the pieces together and figuring out whatever regulatory um, uh, approach they're going to take, are they the linchpin once they go, everybody else goes? Or is there a chance that that Europe kind of leads the way in, in this respect. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm hesitant because I know, uh, Canadians often think the U S has inflated egos on its importance in the global stage. So I don't want to admit this. Um, but I think in this particular regulatory case, I think the U S is going to be the most important entity. Uh, and it's the one that's looking at it most, uh, holistically right now. Um, Europe has been. Uh, mixed signals, the UK, fairly anti-crypto, core Europe, fairly pro-crypto. Uh, and I expect that to continue, but neither is taking a strong stance. Um, the U.S. is at the most sort of uh, uh, undetermined state. And I do think other, other regulators will, will follow suit. And I actually expect it to be, expect it to come out in a positive way. Um, I, I do, but I do think the U.S. is the most important. Do you think there's a potential risk for regulators dragging their heels in, in the U.S. and the SEC and the rapid pace of innovation and change to actually curtail any demand that comes to an ETF? Like as investors find other ways in which to express their digital asset exposure, you know, taking your, mm -hmm. your stat from Coinbase. Those are all assets that are not going to go into the ETF or very unlikely to go into the ETF. And, and even now retirement accounts are allowing the investment of crypto. So you don't have that sort of captive market in retirement accounts. What do you think on that? Is there still enough assets in the traditional space that probably overwhelm that and we don't have to worry about it? Uh, yes. <laughs> that's what I think. No, I mean, wait. Do elaborate. I'm sorry. It was a bad question, by the way. Closed in question. Terrible. Yeah. What What you're saying is 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 of course <laughs> true. Um, we don't need an ETF to trade or gain access to an inherently digital asset, and there are people doing very interesting things to integrate it. So, so we do need a way to integrate it into the traditional financial system. The people who say, "Let's just skip a generation forward." Um, and, and, and only think about a digital first blockchain enabled system. That's like a pipe dream that doesn't align with reality because most money is in traditional advisor hands, brokerage houses, mm -hmm. wirehouses, et cetera. Um, there are ways for those people to gain exposure to Bitcoin through, through direct trading and custody, those sorts of things. But those are still relatively nascent. And even in when they're well matured, I think at least for the next five years, people are going to want a third party institution to manage their, their Bitcoin exposure. People want to know you have a third party custodian that you're not doing integrated trading and you're not lending out the Bitcoin without compensating people. And, um, I'm just skeptical that any particular platform will make all of the right decisions, uh, to compete with an ETF. That said, we could wake up tomorrow. Charles Schwab could be custodying Bitcoin directly. Um, and offering trading and liquidity directly like any single stock. And that would be a meaningful threat to an ETF. I don't think it's likely, but it's, you know, it's what I would do if I were CEO of Charles Schwab, as unlikely as that sounds. What about, what about taking your expertise in technology in the mindset of the market cap weighted sort of expression and then, but selling that through crypto land rather than traditional finance land? Has Bitwise thought about that at all in, in trying to attack the landscape that is crypto? Because there's, I'm sure, lots of crypto folks out there that would want an easy solution that provides them an easy way to access that. We definitely have. And it's very tempting because this is the stuff we love and do all day. And they're good. They're good groups working on it. Index Coop and um, there's a DeFi Pulse Index that you can allocate to, which I admire. Um, Bitwise has made the decision to orient its business around financial advisors. So while that is very attractive and seductive, and we think an interesting next generation place to go, um, we're focused on, on having, you know, uh, salmon lunches with advisors in, in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, and that's just a different model. 
It's a model that requires uh, where the, the asset management is almost incidental and what you're supplying is expertise and research support. So that's the business we're building. We think it's a multi-billion dollar business. Um, but this direct approach, uh, we deeply admire. I support um, everyone who's pushing in that space. And I think more retail crypto advisors would be better served if those sorts of index allocations were easy to do uh, at places like 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 Coinbase or directly uh, through DeFi protocol. Um, so I think it's a great space, just not one we've chosen to play in. So, As a, so advisors dig in a little bit into the uh, dig in a little bit into the um, the actual structure of the fund and custody and how the custody model for Bitwise funds differs from a custody model for a traditional mutual fund. Ah, that's a great question. In many ways, it's very similar. We only use third-party regulated custodians to hold our crypto, right? When you hold crypto, what you're holding effectively is a password. You can think of it written down on a piece of paper, tear it up into multiple parts, and then and then stored in vaults. Um, we uh, we custody our assets with a third-party regulated custodian. Our our crypto index fund is custody with Coinbase Institutional which is the largest crypto custodian separate from Coinbase uh, retail. Um, we custody our Bitcoin fund with Fidelity and our DeFi fund with Anchorage. Happy to talk about why we have different custodians if there's any interest. Um, but the core is very I similar would. to a traditional custodian. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, great. Um, yeah. Just to finish that thought, the main difference lies in how we trade. We're very careful in our trading exer exercise to ensure that assets move directly from trading partners to our custodian and don't flash onto exchanges. We're sort of a belts and suspenders, um, hyper security conscious firm. Uh, so you can think of it as traditional custody with an extra layer of paranoia um, built on top of it. That's, that's the main difference. Um, in terms of why we custody with different custodians, um, two of them are very similar. So Coinbase Institutional and Fidelity offer very similar technological custodial solutions. I will tell you, if you go and talk to crypto custodians, you'll leave terrified uh, because they'll all tell you that the other people will lose their assets, right? That's how they compete. But in practice, Fidelity and Coinbase, very similar. The main difference, Fidelity only custodies Bitcoin. Coinbase custodies a lot of assets. So we use Fidelity for our Bitcoin fund, Coinbase for our crypto index fund. The difference is Anchorage. Uh, Anchors is a relatively new custodian. Uh, they're a federally chartered bank. So they, they have the highest level regulatory clearance in the U.S. And they use a different um, custody module uh, called a hardware security module. The analogy that I, I make to people about the difference between cold storage and hardware security modules and then like uh, keeping crypto assets on an exchange is similar to like how a bank is structured. You could have your money in a safety deposit box. That's similar to cold storage. You could have your money in a bank account, which is more accessible, potentially a little bit less safe, but more useful. You don't have to walk to the bank to get it out of cold storage. Or you could have your money in your wallet, which is, which is like having it on an exchange. The reason we custody our DeFi fund with Anchorage, which uses this middle point hardware security module approach, um, which they argue is, is more secure, but mostly because it's 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 theoretically easier to interact with the market and do things like staking uh, and governance rights through a hardware security module uh, than it is in true cold storage, which is really like locked up. You know, but it's, uh, it's like, high quality regulated. Sorry, uh, I'm in a bit of a delay, but it, it, it's kind of like trading uh, security, right? You have your bare security that you hold in your hand and it's worth something. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you want to trade that security, you have to hand it over to some sort of custodian that puts it in street name so that they can trade on your behalf a lot faster. There's that, that simplicity of, and of course, once yep. you have it in your hand, then it can be burnt. And when it's burnt, it's gone. It can be stolen. You know, a lot of things can happen with that bearer bond in a way, in a similar way when you, when you're holding your own, uh, your own Bitcoin and your hard wallet. And, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why possibly having some sort of fund structure like yours provides a level of security um, than, than you would otherwise. It's, it's so important. I, will, I, I wasn't picking up my phone to check it. I received a, a scam text uh, phishing for a Coinbase account reopening 
35 minutes before this podcast. Hmm. Um, I get them all the time, right? Because my name is associated with crypto. I don't think the scammers know that I have $40.37 in my Coinbase account. I use it to pay <laughs> fantasy football fees. That's it. Uh, the rest of my crypto money is that in Bitwise funds. But still, almost every other day I get a scam text. There's real risk to having a lot of money walking around on your phone. You have to be very um, careful with it. And I think one of the reasons advisors come to crypt, come to companies like Bitwise with funds is to get access to that institutional uh, custody. It's, it's a material risk. That's great. And uh, I love digging into the the uh, nuances there. I wonder if we also might dig into the nuances about the, we talked just briefly on what a small allocation can do for a portfolio. And I know one of the pieces that I think uh, Bitwise has written is on having a small piece of a crypto or digital asset, rebalancing that and how that can enhance the sharp ratio of a portfolio. And I think there'll be many advisors keen to understand that. So can you uh, maybe unpack that research a little bit and uh, dig into it? It's available for comprehensive reading, I'm assuming on Bitwise Investments website under the research section. But um, let's, That's get, right. you know, let's get the uh, direct from Matt, uh, direct from the horse's mouth, a, a sort of a summary on why you know, this digital asset frontier asset class, even in a small allocation can have, you know, some, some significant enhancements to a portfolio. Absolutely. And we're actually updating that white paper and releasing uh, a new version uh, on August 5th and doing a webinar. Fantastic. You heard it here first. Email us, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) The beautiful thing about Bitcoin as an asset, which I think is underappreciated, is that it has the characteristics of traditional alternatives in that it has high potential returns, right? Up 4,000% or so over the last three or four years. It has low correlations to stocks and bonds. The correlations historically have been about 0.1 to 0.2, depending on which time period you look at. But unlike early stage venture capital investments or private equity investments, which share those characteristics, high return, low correlation, it's liquid. And because it's liquid, you can use it in your portfolio and you can rebalance. And that dramatically changes the impact it has it on portfolio. Many advisors we talk to look at Bitcoin and they see that it's volatile and they say, I don't want to add a volatile asset to my portfolio because it will make the portfolio more volatile. But that's, of course, not true uh, if it's not correlated. So the study we did, we looked at what a a one, two and a half and five percent allocation to Bitcoin would have on a 60 percent equity, 40 percent bond portfolio. We looked at it on a rolling return basis meaning every possible one, two, and three-year period at Bitcoin's history. And the TLDRs, there's actually never been a three-year period when adding Bitcoin to a portfolio didn't improve your risk-adjusted returns and improve them dramatically. On average, the Sharpe ratio jumps by about 50%. Uh, and the 2.5% allocation to Bitcoin accounts for something like 10 to 15% of your annual re- percentage points of your annual return. So often increasing your annual return by 50 to 100 percent. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns, of course, Um, but the the track is very strong. Even when you shrink to a two-year window, it's contributed positively about 94 percent of the time. And even a one-year window, it's contributed positively about 80 percent of the time. And the mind-blowing thing, we're running these numbers for the current pullback, but if you had invested on December 17th, 2017, when Bitcoin peaked at 19,000 or so, and you had rebalanced on a quarterly basis all the way through the drawdown to where it bottomed around 3,000, you actually increased your returns by doing that. And that's the piece that blows people's minds and they don't believe until they do the math. But the reason is you're rebalancing a volatile asset and you're able to harvest the volatility. People have talked about this in the commodity space for years, um, but Crypto amplifies it like 510x. Uh, and so it has this beautiful, it has had this beautiful historical return characteristics. Um, and I think it can be a really nice addition to a portfolio in that small size. As you get above 5%, you start seeing more volatility enter your portfolio, more maximum drawdown impact. But below 5% seems to be historically this magic uh, fairy dust. Uh, that, that's helped portfolios, at least on a historical basis. Can, can you also contrast the not rebalancing side too? Because I think 
if an advisor is going to enter into this space, it's absolutely critical that the phenomenon is the Shannon's demon phenomenon. We've written about it and I'm, uh, you know, um, but it's critically important that you rebalance and it's hard to rebalance, right? If you bought in January and February and you were sitting here last week, mm -hmm. you should have rebalanced and, and, or it, whether it's calendar, whether it's some percentage uh, change, but can you, I think you did some, some work on what happens if you don't rebalance and how critical the rebalancing is. And by the way, it's hard when something's down to rebalance. That's hard. It is hard. It's also hard to rebalance when it's up. Correct. And you need to do both. Uh, Enter the advisor. That's where the advice comes in. Yeah, that's where the advisor comes in. The short answer is if you don't rebalance, um, it's not a great portfolio asset. I mean, historically, over the long periods of time, it's boosted your returns because it's gone up a lot. But in terms of your sharp ratio, it doesn't do wonderful things because it is so volatile and it can become a large part of your portfolio. If you bought it, at the depths of the, the start of the pandemic in March, it's trading for $5,000. It proceeded to trade to $70,000. If you didn't rebalance, it became a very large part of your portfolio by May of this year. And this recent 50% pullback, uh, also your clients forgot about the contribution it made between March, 2020 and May, 2021. But they sure are happy to talk to you about the negative contribution <laughs> from May until today. Uh, that's the way everyone works. Um, yeah, absolutely. You need to rebalance. Our studies show if you rebalance, at least historically, either on a monthly or quarterly cadence, um, or you have a rebalancing tolerance, say you trigger it when it's 50% out of line with the allocation you're having, if it's two and a half percent, if it gets to 3.75, those sorts of things, um, seem to, to, to historically have done well, um, annual rebalances maybe too infrequent for an asset class that's this volatile uh, is what our data shows. Hey, Matt, have you ever, uh, have you conducted this study versus a risk parity or uh, adaptive asset that's allocation? A, that's a great question. Strategy. Short answer is no. The short answer is no, but I'll, I'll get my director of research on it right now. It's a, it's a great question. Well, we have, we have done some work on it and the allocation to Bitcoin would be roughly around two to 3% on a global risk parity portfolio. So it just kind of fits in lines when you're trying, when you're looking at the risk contribution across all the asset classes, we know commodities are in 25 to 30%, depending on the commodity group, we got Bitcoin three times that, right? So you're going to get, you're going to get uh, what, what your heuristic would tell you, which is one, 3%. Um, the tough, the great thing about a set portfolio like risk parity, if somebody's watching it, is that you're using it as a, a professional tool to harvest volatility. And I just find when I speak with a lot of individuals and investors and, and why advisors are so critical here is that it's seen as a lottery ticket. And when you see it as a lottery ticket, rebalancing is antithetical to that. But it's absolutely, if you want that value, you have to rebalance. You have to take away that winning lottery ticket and use it as a tool to, to increase your returns by one or 2% over time and, and reduce your overall volatility and drawdown of uh, the overall portfolio, right? So I think that's a crucial point. That's, that's, one, that's gonna be one of the huge kind of um, bridges that you need to build as an advisor from somebody in retail who has owned Bitcoin this long that has a holistic view portfolio construction to bring them over to your world and saying, you're doing it wrong. We need to think about this in a smarter way. And that's, that's gotta be like a key portion of that research and, and content that you're putting out, I imagine. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely. I love to hear all of those words. I agree completely. There's a big difference between just buying Bitcoin or buying crypto and using it in a portfolio. And it's so powerful in a portfolio. I swear, if you stripped the name crypto off of it and you just showed it to a CFA and said, do you want this in portfolio? A hundred percent of them would say yes. Um, because it has that, that remarkable characteristic, uh, but you have to manage it as you're saying, you know, look, this, I was, just want to talk. I was just going to say, this was actually the topic of the first conversation that I ever had with Rodrigo, mm -hmm. which wow. was shed yeah. demon, which was that, that most advisors think that, that adding hedge funds or adding, uh, long shorts to a portfolio is is going to mitigate their risk uh, in terms of volatility. But it was actually Rodrigo who actually pointed out to me that, that 
the much better strategy, much more eff efficient strategy was to add assets that were more volatile and behave different. With lower correlation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So this is, I'm actually doing a piece right now because uh, I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to do a big push on educating advisors about capital efficiency and how to create proper portfolios. And it's just, it, it's so fascinating to see what little options investment advisors have to add diversification when they have that 20% of their sleeve that they're going to use alternatives for what they have access to is very low risk, low volatility, non-correlated asset classes that bring down the returns for their portfolios and lower their volatility slightly because they're, they're zigging only a little bit when their portfolios are zagging a lot. Right? So mm -hmm. it, it, to find an asset class in the landscape available to investment advisors that are approved by their respective wirehouses that has that characteristic is so tough to find. It's been 15 years of my career trying to do it for advisors. And so when you see something like Bitcoin come along, that's available to retail investors and advisors that has a ball of 80 and a, a low correlation. I mean, a correlation of 0.1 is unheard of. A volatility of 80 is unheard of. I, I, I actually think that that's the only one available to advisors today. It, it's just, it, it's criminal not to include it. It's criminal not to think about it and put it in the right size because you, you're just doing everything that we know the Nobel Prize winning theorem of portfolio construction should do. Rant over, but I just like, well, this is, I just want not, to see more asset classes. A little bit out there. As, as, as love it, worry, if you're going to claim a, a fiduciary title in particular, it's your job to know more than the client. It's your job to position the portfolio in the client's best interest. Uh, it's your job to position highly volatile, non-correlated assets in a portfolio, especially in a extremely low return environment where 40% of the portfolio is in bonds that yield next to nothing. And those bonds um, implicitly build a valuation for equities that's not cheap because those discounted cash flow assets and the discount rate is very low. So the valuations are a little bit higher than, you know, they may typically be. So if you're going to wear, you know, sort of a fiduciary hat in this realm, then you're, you're obligated to at least be very informed if you don't want to allocate as well as if you do. Yeah. Now, now so, so Matt, you, very true. Yeah, you, you've got, you've got a history of doing a lot of great conferences and things like that with DETF.com. Are you going to bring that model to bear here with Bitwise? And, and when, when do you, if you, if you are, when are you going to roll something like that out? I love it. Actually, a couple ways. So we, we are launching a new, uh, a new ETF conference. I still have my ETF hat on occasionally called Exchange, nice. which will be in Miami, uh, in February of 2020. Oh yeah, we're we'll going to be talking. We're, we're, we're there. I love it. We'll, yeah. We'll get you up there speaking. Um, uh, the Bitwise or Bitcoin in in a risk sensitive portfolio. Um, yeah. So that's going to be fun. Uh, I also am an advisor to BlockWorks, which is the leading provider of institutional focused crypto conferences. Uh, they're doing a big DeFi conference uh, in April of next year. They have a nice conference in in New York, um, and I plan to do more in the space. I would love to put on an institutional uh, crypto day. Um, you know, like an old school Wall Street style conference in New York, uh, to help, you know, awaken people to the potential here. So I'm working on it. There's more to come, uh, but I'm, I'm helping in that way in a, in a few different locations. Love us. Awesome. <laughs> All right. You guys don't have it. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was, well, I was Pierre to play again. Pierre has uh, a, a closing question. I think that. Unless you have any more questions, Pierre, any follow-ups? No, I, I think we covered, I, I love what we covered. I think, I think the, uh, the Shannon's demon, uh, oh, was so uh, great. Yeah. It's, that's an awesome takeaway. Um, so one last question. I'm ready. Technical question, Matt, just get ready. Um, it's a, would you rather question? Okay. All right. Would you rather live for a week in the past or live for a week in the future? Ooh, then why? Great question. I'm a future oriented guy. I've always been a future oriented guy. Always had a foot in the future. ETFs, 
crypto, AI, other things. I'd love to get a peek ahead. Think of what you could do with a peek ahead. Think of what you would know, what you would see coming. I'm going with a peek ahead. I still have my memories uh, of things, things in the past, people I've lost and things like that. So I'm looking ahead, foot in the future. Love it. Love it. All right. Thank you. Well, you that's right, Matt. And that's uh, very exciting what you're doing. I can't say what you say, how it continues to evolve. Before we wrap though, Matt, can you uh, just remind everybody where they can find you? Uh, on Twitter sure. or LinkedIn or in, in the, and the web, web addresses and things like that. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Matt underscore Hogan. I have a U in my last name. So it's H O U G A N. Uh, you need email me at Matt. That's right. Exactly. Um, you can email me at Matt at bitwiseinvestments.com. You can go to bitwiseinvestments.com and sign up. Uh, and then you'll get our monthly advisor letter and my monthly notes from the CIO. Uh, my most recent one is on on Ethereum, and uh, happy to shoot that to you if you sign up. So, chase me down. I'd love to see it. I can't recommend this enough for financial advisors wherever you are um, that need to get up to speed and need to communicate these topics to uh, end investors. the The website, the research papers, the videos are of tremendous benefit, and I think will help you um, educate the end investor and help them get over the hump. Whether it's whether they decide to allocate or not, or today or in the future, again, as we discussed in the in the early stages, that the change is upon us. Um, you, it is a risk to your business. I think as a financial advisor, if you if you're not aware, so uh, Matt and Bitwise are doing a great social good for advisor education in this space. So I highly recommend checking them, checking them out. And as always. And I will reiterate what Pierre said at the beginning. Make sure you Hulk smash the like button and make lots of comments and share this if you had some fun. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. 